Hey friends, my name's Stevie Taylor. Welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. My guest today is Mark Dynamics, a true legend in the Australian dance music scene. Uh, Mark knows a thing or two about how the uh, music industry revolves in Australia. Um, From producing his own records, DJing, hosting events, radio broadcasting, and running his own label, Long Distance Recordings. He's been in the forefront of the minds of Australian dance music enthusiasts for over 25 years, and He's also sold more mix albums with his name on them than any other DJ in Australia to date. And Mark Mark currently heads up uh, Ministry of Sound Recordings Australia. Uh, In this chat, Mark takes us on his journey through dance music scene in Sydney and beyond from the 90s to today, the highs, the lows and the in-betweens. It was great to catch up with my old mate again. So ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Mark Dynamics. Cheers. I think we're rolling. Let's go. Mark Dynamics. How are you? Good. Welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Sweet as, man. What's going on? Oh, it's been a busy day. I work yep. at Ministry of Sound uh, during the day and uh, we've been putting together some compilations uh, for release next month. Is that the trance release that you're advertising? We have got one called Trance Nation. Trance Nation, yep. Yeah, which is all classic tracks from the 90s and the noughties and, and sort of the time period when I met you, Steve. Yes, that's, that's right. Oh, yeah. It would have been the late times. 90s. Late yeah. 90s, yeah. I was just thinking about that on the way in. I think or, it might have been about... Was ninety seven, I think. Uh, yeah, ninety seven. Ninety seven. Yeah. Well, I met your brother first. You did, yeah. Greg, yeah. and then uh, yeah. met you and your other brother, Craig. Yep. And uh, it was the terrible trio. Man, man, <laughs> we won't delve too much into that <laughs> stuff because my kids will probably listen to this one day. That's the bonus feature. That's the bonus feature. Yeah, you got to pay for that. I'll put that on Patreon or something like that. Get some <laughs> money out of it. Um, so we're in your studio. We're actually, I'm actually admiring your your new podcast gears here because you do a podcast yourself i do yes yep. i do one called electronic radio yep. which is uh, all of the music that i grew up with which i used to love i used to buy a lot of 80s music on 12 inch single and uh that was really what got me into djing yep. you know, and got me into electronic music all those bands like tears for fears and new order and pet shop boys and depeche mode all of that stuff i was buying in the 80s we just pull out all of those classics and also some really obscure stuff as well off 12-inch vinyl, mix it all together and um, host it and sort of uh, lay some interesting anecdotes along the way as well. That's really cool. So I'll, I'll link that in the, the show notes to this. Fantastic. Um, yeah, man. All right, man, let's, um, let's throw right back. Um, you're, you're originally from England, aren't you? Yes. Yep. Born in London and then lived in Weymouth with my parents through my very early years. Yep. And uh, left England when I was 11 years old in 1987. Yep. Oh, so were you, was there any music going on before you left? 
Well, we know, I know your dad. Your dad yeah, was there, there was definitely music in the house because dad was a jazz guitarist. Yep. Uh, he was had his own band called the Kenny Vic Combo yep. Jazz Band and uh, he used to play on the Queen Mary and, and boats like that and go to, to America. Um, so I got a lot of influence from him uh, musically, but, you know, obviously he liked jazz and I like pop music. So there, was a, there wasn't a much crossover, but, you know, the theory of it that we, yep. we both enjoyed. Uh, so many arguments in the house between my dad and I about music you know I'd put on something that I liked at the time Eurythmics or Nick Kershaw or something and he would just take on what is this shit you know <laughs> and and vice versa you know at the time I couldn't appreciate George Benson when I was eight years old either no, you know why? but you can later on so I left England when I was 11 and we came out to Australia and uh, just before I left England I remember seeing a DJ uh, at a pub because mum and dad used to go to pubs a lot and take me along to those country English pubs and there was a DJ uh, mixing records together, two turntables and um, he was overlaying the tracks together which I'd never seen before, you know, I had a deck at home but I certainly didn't have two where you could mix them together through a DJ mixer so I was in awe of this guy watching this guy mix, I think he was mixing Kim Wilde into Michael Jackson's Thriller. I was spurned in my brain watching those, those two records go together because it was the first time I saw the DJ mix. So when I got to Australia, I was really uh, confused because the music here was very different. Mm. You know, it was... In, uh, in what way? Very rock and roll, you know. Right. And I was, like, I had, you know, my, my brain was tuned to dance beats at the time, you know. In 1987 in England, you know, it was, um, it was very electronic. I'd already picked up on that bug. And uh, coming out here, it was still, you know, pub rock, pub rock which, yep. you know, it's great. I love Midnight Oil, you know, for instance, but it wasn't where I was at at the time. I mean, I was very young and you sort of got a one-track narrow mind at the time. So um, eventually dance music became a thing here in Australia. Uh, you had dance music record stores selling only 12-inch vinyl, um, like Disco City and Parramatta, HMV at Parramatta. Mm. And I'd say HMV Parramatta, when it opened, I think it was 1989, that was the thing that made me go, wow, I have access to this music mm. now. It's not just on the radio, mm. on these obscure stations like 2SER and 2RDJ. Um, I can actually buy these records and take them home. And that's where the DJing bug came. As soon as soon Within a year, I was uh, calling up the radio station saying, can I get work experience at 2RDJ? Awesome. You know, and uh, it happened really quickly from there. From 1990, they uh, eventually got my own show on 2RDJ within a year. And um, that show went for 15 years on radio. And um, uh, from that, you know, 93, I started what was old enough finally to play in clubs. <laughs> so what, what was the first club? First club was probably... Uh, Club Deja Vu, which was called something else, but it was where Sublime became in 1997. Um, it was above that. I think it turned into a gentleman's club for a oh, while, right. yeah, in the, th in the, in the noughties. Yep. But um, back in 93, I think it was called Club De Deja Vu or something like that, and all of the DJs that were on 2RDJ invited me along. They were R&B DJs mainly, but they invited me along to play the house room at the back room. Right. So um, I would do that, and it would be one of those gigs where you'd turn up at like 9pm and you'd finish at 3am, and you know, that was a great experience for me learning how to DJ uh, in a performance mode rather than on radio and um, building up confidence and also trying out all these new records. I mean, there's so many different styles in 93. You had mm. Italian House was really big and trance music was just about to start. Uh, and then you had the harder sounds and then you had the cruisy, funky house sounds from the US as well. So, um, you know, 
we were all buying all different styles at the time. It wasn't so segregated with DJs, you know. It wasn't like, oh, I'm a house DJ, I'm a hardcore DJ. It was like, oh, everyone just bought a bit of everything so they could cover all styles. And I guess that's where the name Dynamics came from as well, right. you know. It was uh, the fact that I was playing so many different styles. You had to come up with a, a rave DJ name. And I just went, well, I play all these styles and let's just say Dynamics, yep. which sort of comes back to haunt you later because I'm not that fond of the name, but I'm completely <laughs> stuck with it now. Yeah, well, you tried a bit of a name change too later on down the track. We'll get to that bit later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And where, where from there? Well, uh Rave, rave parties in Sydney. I mean, it was really at, at its peak in 94, yeah. 95. It was going off, you know. We had Field of Dreams. 96 was one of the one of the better ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the Prodigy parties, not Prodigy the band, but Prodigy the rave in Sydney. Um, ex-ravers will know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, they were pretty much my first chance at playing at a big audience I, right. mean, I mean prodigy six i think was the first big rave that i played at and that was three four thousand people yeah. prodigy seven uh somewhere in minto something like that so yeah. um you know very fortunate to get a break at those raves but the reason i got the break is because i was con- uh, i was in contact with all the rave promoters and yeah. all the djs because of my radio show right. so they'd come in talk about their music talk about the artists that were playing at the party and then i got to meet everyone so it was really a, a social network you know the, the 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 dance scene at that time it was mm. very interconnected that's when people used to talk that's right we didn't have phones to distract <laughs> yeah. us <laughs> yeah, yeah that's really cool and we yeah we you, you, we were talking before about when we met and mm. i think yeah the first time i saw you play was sublime in pitt street yeah i took a residency up in 97 oh man those were the days we had a good three years there at Pitt Street and then it moved to Home Nightclub. Yep. It was still good, but it was different. It was diff- completely different. Yeah, it was a big venue, high ceiling. You don't have that intimacy. The intimacy was gone, yeah. And uh, it changed a little bit. And also, you know, the music changed particularly in that time. You know, in those four years from 97 to, 90, uh, to 2001, I mean, 1997, I was still playing rave music, German trance. You know, by the time we got to 2001, uh, my tastes had completely changed. I was much more into progressive house uh, and even some funky house like your Junior Jack sort of stuff. I was really playing a lot of that. Um, in saying that, I was always trying to find those fringe records that kind of crossed over hybrid of styles. You know, they weren't just funky. They were kind of a little bit progressive as well. They were kind of sat in the middle, you know, uh, and that's the stuff that's always interested me, finding that finding that middle ground, finding that hybrid. Um so, you know, in 2001, there was a lot, a lot of opportunity to play those rec- records because a lot of parties on, a lot of clubs. Um, you know, you'd have Greenwood on a Sunday, which we, we were playing Funky House and Breaks a bit there as well. Yep. Um, but then there would be things like Sweet Chili where you'd be playing full progressive house. And then I'd go and play a rave at uh, Homebush, like Utopia, yep. uh, and be playing the harder German sounds. And, and people accepted you as a DJ that just played all of those sounds. And, um, you know, they wouldn't quite know what to expect, maybe, yep. uh, when you played, but that was part of the, um, the essence of it, you yep. know. And in that sort of heyday, you were playing three four gigs a night sometimes eh? yeah well we yeah. could go to six gladys wasn't breathing down our necks <laughs> yeah. so you know you'd start at nine do nine till ten thirty somewhere then go yep. somewhere else to eleven till one yep then go to two to four and then 
you know, five to six somewhere. And then, I mean, this is where you come back in. <laughs> then we'd all go to the pavilion. The pavilion, yeah. And uh, do the recovery on a Saturday and Sunday that, morning. That's right. And that would go from six to midday. Yep. And I remember being there till midday many, many times. Um, I don't think I ever made midday. Yeah. It was more... Probably 10, 11 for us, I think, because we had to head back west. Yeah, that's right. It's a long night, you know, 9 p.m. till midday the next day, and yep. you're pretty much playing continuously. But, you know, while the work's there, you've got to take it. And yep, um, it. I had some great times there as well. I mean, yep. some of my best memories, especially at that beginning of that trance period when, you know, 99, 2000, when it was sounding very fresh it was a new sound we're all excited by it and you know trance music back then, before it sort of became Tiesto and Armin Van Buren and, and sort of a collaboration with Hardstyle you know before that it was much more journey music and um, something you could really uh, really lose yourself in on the dance floor you know I mean, people yeah. would be dancing with their eyes closed covered with the smoke machine fluid you know just like dancing and they can't see a damn thing <laughs> yeah, to these long build ups and I remember looking out to the crowd and seeing, you know, 300 people in a tiny little venue like the Pavilion dancing to the most obscure track I'd just picked out that week. Yep. And they were loving it and they didn't know it. And that is, that for me gives me goosebumps. Yep. You know, not playing the latest, you know, uh, Bob Sinclair track that everyone's heard and someone's requesting you've got to play it. That doesn't interest me at all. But seeing something like that where people were really accepting of new music and they're really um, enjoying the fact that you're pulling out, selecting is the word, selecting those tracks and putting them in a particular order yep. that was going to take them on their journey that morning. That, to me, is something special. It's different now. Yeah. It's not better, it's not worse, it's just different. It's just different, yeah. yeah. It's just change. We've got to embrace change, I guess, eh? Hey? Absolutely, yeah. Did, was there a moment when you actually felt it starting to change? Uh, it's always changing, you know. I mean... As I said, 2001 was a particular year, I remember, because it really changed to Funky House. I mean, you noticed it. Uh, all the clubs started becoming much funkier. The groove was introduced. A US sound kind of got in, uh, introduced into the records, which wasn't there before so much in the mainstream. So that was a particular year. 2004, we found that progressive house started to die off. People weren't so interested in it anymore. Um, and uh, that was a bit of a shame because there were still some great records coming out. But, you know, a sound, a genre kind of has a three to four year lifespan. And then that is it. I mean, you think of Speed Garage, it was like, three years you think of progressive house sort of 99 to 2003 um you know that funky house period with junior jack and all those records we know that was 2001 to 2004 five you know and then what happened in 2005 a new thing came along and that was electro electro house you know which was it started off as electro clash which was more uh, left field and a bit more broken beats and then you know someone said well let's hybrid that with a 4-4 beat and, and beef it up a bit and that's when all those records started coming along um, God I can't think of any Electro House records now but because I've kind of banished them from my mind because yeah. it's not my favourite <laughs> genre at all but there were shitloads of them for many many years and that continued on that Electro thing and, and you sort of you sort of dropped out of the scene for a while eh? Yeah, well, that was probably the reason why. It was, yep, one, of, it was yep. one of the reasons why. It was yep. Musically, I wasn't enjoying what was the mainstream, what was popular, and I was yep. finding it more and more difficult to find gigs or um, play the music that I really still love because it wasn't in fashion at the time.
you know, I was really enjoyed playing techno, but trying to get a techno gig in Sydney back in 2008 was impossible, mm. you know, nearly impossible, especially with someone coming from a mainstream um, background such as myself and being associated with Ministry of Sound. It, it did it did affect um, the kind of gigs that I would get. Yeah, so let's, let's tell people your association with Ministry of Sound. Tell us the association first and then I'll, I'll tell you, I remember a story about... A, a, um, a mix that you did and we rocked up to your house just as you were coming down the stairs and you like handed it to the postie because it was you're going to be late so he oh, took yeah. it away <laughs> I was always late with it they'd give me three or four days and um, it would always push out to five I mean that you got to remember those mixes that I put together on ministry I was mixing them off vinyl um, and we were trying to slam 20 tracks into 78 minutes yeah so there was a lot of editing. Once I'd actually done the live mix um, through just a, you know, two turntables and a, and a DJ mixer into my computer, then I would have to go over it again and chop out sections of tracks to try and bring them down to a shorter version. Yep. We didn't really use the radio edits because they weren't on the vinyls back yep. then. Yep, yep, you know? yep. So uh, we weren't mixing CDs, we were mixing the vinyl. Yep. So I'd have to go through the whole mix and pull out all the pops as well. Right. You know, so that is a lengthy process. I mean, it's literally muting a microsecond yep. of sound. Uh, and sometimes that microsecond, that pop can be different on the left-hand channel to the right-hand channel. Right. You know, so you'd, you'd mute that bit on the left and then you'd have to move forward a few frames and then mute that bit on the right. I mean, that was for every single pop off those records for 78 minutes. So that took ages. Um, and then editing the... I didn't mind the editing bit so much. I mean, you know, this is a music podcast, so we can go into a bit of detail. For sure. Um, you know, editing on... I think we were using Soundforge back then in the days, yep, yep. Sony Soundforge. Yep. Um, and, you know, I prefer editing still on that to something like Pro Tools or, you know, you within... You can get that detail, You eh? can get the detail. Yeah. It's a lot clearer on the yep. screen. And, yep. you know, you can see the beginning of the kick drum where there's a slight... where there's a zero crossover point gotcha. and then there's a slight um, rise in the sine wave, you know. Yep. Um, and it makes it a lot easier when you're, when you're uh, editing dance music. So basically what I was doing, I was taking the 20 tracks and editing them down to radio edits coherently too so you know you can't just be slapdash about it because <laughs> yeah, yeah. people are buying this CD and they expect the full track I mean you can cut out the, the mixing sections and maybe the long break in the middle but um, you know you can't just chop out verse 3 or verse 2 and 3 you know it's, it just yeah. Yeah. yeah so I actually got really good at editing that was I really quite enjoyed it yep. um, and um, that was how we used to put the CDs together. Yep. It was literally just within two turntables and Soundforge. Yep. There was no Ableton back then. Yep. So I did a mixed CD for Central Station Records uh, called Peak Time. And this was 1999. Remember that? Yeah. And um, the head of Central Station at the time in, in A&R was uh, Tim McGee, another DJ. And he um, left Central Station and started up the Australian office of Ministry of Sound. Um, so the UK guys had come over here and said, we want to set up an Australian office. They picked him and then they set up Ministry of Sound in 2000. Um, and then the first CD that they did locally was the Summer Annual 2000. And they said, Mark, why don't you come over here and um, do this CD with us? Um, sweet. So at the time, I was actually still mixing stuff for Central Station. We put out Peak Time 2 and fr Full Frequency. But I was also doing Summer Annual for Ministry of Sound and Club Nation as well, which yep. was the early 2001 CD. And that sort of set things in motion, you know. Um, 
Ministry of Sound at the time was a massive label in the UK. Um, they'd already been doing events over here in Australia. Um, they had the association with Boy George and Pete Tong and uh, Judge Jules and all those big G- DJs of the time. So um, to have an Australian arm with localised DJs on it from Sydney, Melbourne, you know, Adelaide. We had DJs from Adelaide and Queensland and, and Perth as well. Um, mixing the music... Uh, was really special and it was a new thing so it took off yep. the biggest one was the annual 2006 which I think at the time just on CD without any digital version sold 350,000 copies I mean you compare that to what CDs sell these days I mean that that's just incredible yep. you know that's a massive no- in fact it's the biggest selling compilation ever in Australia dance music or otherwise right. so all of those things that we grew up with like uh, 1987 right on track and uh, you know hit machine and hit picks and all those things um it beat all of those yep. which was mad yep. um everyone who was buying the city was coming to the to the events as well so we had big shows around the country you had your eight metro uh, capitals and then you had all of your regional areas as well there's always about 20 regional shows yep. and it just became this whirlwind yep. um you yep. know from 2001 to 2000 and end of 2007 i was on this whirlwind tour thing and mm. um uh, at the end of 2007, I actually said to the ministry guys, you know what, I need a break. I need to just pull back a bit. Uh, and also musically, uh, my tastes are changing. You know, I was really getting into that minimal sound from Berlin and all that tech house. Uh, it was becoming huge in 2007 as an alternative to electro house, which was becoming big in Australia. So um, suddenly I wasn't playing the music that was the number one at the time that was mainstream and I just said guys I, w- I want to do something a bit different I want to do some compilations that are more my sound what I'm playing now and they said okay no problem well, so we did mix mixtape which was um, all mainly all German stuff quite obscure for the time um, and then we did another one called Discotech mm-hmm. which was even more left field really quite minimal uh, and I really enjoyed doing those, but I found that it wasn't just the music. I actually was burnt out from touring and um, needed a break. So going back to your original point, um, 2008 was definitely the time where I said, you know what, I actually could take quite a long break from this uh, and I need to, you know, for my own mental health. The downside of having late nights all the time, yeah. you know, yeah. you're, in, you're in venues, you're drinking. It did you know, grind me down. I didn't realize how hard I was pushing it in terms of getting to, you know, getting to the airport on a Thursday, going and playing in Brisbane one night, then the next night you're in Melbourne, the next night you're in Perth, and then coming back to Sydney to do shows on a Sunday night, Icebox and Greenwood, and doing that every weekend. And it was just, it was too much. Yeah. But I couldn't say no. So, uh, you know, we worked hard, all of us DJs that were busy at the time, you know, Kid Kenobi and Ajax and everyone, we all worked really hard touring around. It wasn't just... Uh, a DJing thing there was the preparation with it there was the marketing that goes with it there was the mixed CDs during the day uh, and, and working on that stuff and then the touring on the weekend so there was a lot it was a lot in it it wasn't just yep. one thing yep. yeah yep. so um, yeah I did take a break I took a break from sort of 2009 I still did a few gigs but it certainly wasn't like it was before uh, from 2009 to about 2012 sort of took a break 2013 and uh, in that time I started working in TV and film and uh, I started working with um, uh, Andrew Denton started working on his, some of his shows that was my first introdu- introduction oh I didn't know that yeah oh, right, okay. so he, did, he did a um, he did a quiz show on called Randling on um, the ABC so I did some 
pre-production sound work for that, location sound, and that got me in with a few people in TV companies. And I then started doing some movie uh, location sound recording, um, did a few movies. And then I had a terrible accident in the mm. uh, beginning of 2013. I was actually on a TV set. Uh, it was it was for a dance music show. Uh, it was an, it was actually an Aboriginal dance show, uh, which was being broadcast on SBS called Move It Mob Style. And I can actually talk about that, this now because the court case is over. <laughs> so um, yeah, I was on Cockatoo Island, and uh, we were you know taping and. Uh, they had a bar there on Cockatoo Island at one stage and um, we were kind of next to it overlooking the water there filming and I was controlling all the playback of the music and recording the dancers' voice as they were dancing, you know, doing the instructions of how to dance because that's what the show was about. And uh, we had this music coming from one of the bars there. It was like during the day, the bar wasn't open and the producer said to me, look, can you go in there and and, uh, get them to turn that down? You know, and I said, yep, no problem. So I was in a rush and um, rushed around from this kind of really bright area into this dark area and saw this, saw this doorway there, like a gateway, which was a staff entrance because their main entrance was closed off and it was the only way into the bar. So I was just like, yep, yeah, yeah, got to get this done, rushing forward and not realising it was low height because there was no sticker on the front of the uh, of the door or anything like that. There was no, you know, stripes. There was no gotcha. n- there was no no entry or anything like that. And it was a dark area, so the actual bar was made of scaffolding, right? And um, this doorway was like a scaffolding bar, like metal, right. and it was grey, so you couldn't really see it in the dark. So I just ran straight into it at full pelt and uh, smashed the front of my head and fell backwards and saw stars for about a minute and I was just like, shit, that hurt. And then I got up and I realized, oh, I've done some damage here, my neck really hurts. So I continued on through the day and uh, finished the, the shoot for the day and then I was in so much pain by the end of the day, I got on the ferry there at Cockatoo Island and got myself over to Balmain Hospital, which was the closest. And by the time I got to Balmain Hospital, I was writhing in pain. I was in emergency on the floor going, ah, you know, it was, it was full on. Yeah. And they took me in and, and, you know, gave me some panadine fort, didn't touch the size, called an ambulance. They, they took me in an ambulance uh, to RPA and uh, threw some morphine in on the way and uh, took some x-rays and couldn't really see anything. They had me in a neck brace by this stage, but they couldn't really see anything on the x-rays or the CT scan. So... Anyway, I went home, morphine wore off, pain came back twice as bad. So I got to a GP, said, you need to go and get an MRI. So I got an MRI done and yeah, it showed up um, particularly bad damage in my neck, uh, but also in my lower spine as well. So I think I, I herniated discs at C3, C5, C7, T8 and L5. So not only did I have this immense pain uh, running down my left arm because of C7 being damaged, um, I also lost the feeling of uh, three fingers in my left hand. And I'm left-handed, so that that meant I couldn't DJ anymore. Uh, I lost the feeling for about six months uh, in my left hand. I had stinging pain like in my elbow, all the way up my shoulder blade, down my back. And then L5 uh, in my back basically uh, caused my piriformis to spasm out, which meant I had huge pain going down my leg and I couldn't lift it at all. So that stopped me from walking properly. Um, and I mean, I had shooting pain in my ankle. That's how much the L5 controls everything in your lower part of your body, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, that really 
threw me back quite a long way, not mm. just physically, but psychologically as well, because sure, yeah. I'd just been on this path to, you know, get TV get, get work it, get happening. Him, get him back to something else. Yeah, get a new career path, and it started to really happen, and this, uh, this accident happened, and... Um, yeah, I spent the first three months pretty much in bed, couldn't sleep because I couldn't turn my neck, couldn't lie my neck on my side or anything. And uh, yeah, I was pretty much a wreck by May that year and the accident happened in, in February. So, um, and then it just went downhill from there. I spent the next two years really in recovery for this. You know, I had to get pr- proper trauma recovery. Um, and, uh, you know, I was walking around with a walking stick. In fact, you know, every time it spasms out, I, I have to pull out a walking stick again for two weeks. It's, yeah, right. It still happens now, even right, in 2019. Right. So, um, yeah, psychologically that ruined me for a bit. Yeah. Yeah, and certainly wasn't in any uh, confidence or psychological state to perform in front of people. Right. It really stopped that, which was right. a shame because that's, you know, I did want to get back into it um, yep. around then after having a break. So... So, yeah, that happened. Oh, you were, you were getting the bug to come I back. I was definitely getting the bug yeah, to play right. again. Yeah, right. So that happened, and that's life's roller coaster. you know. You accept it. Um, and, uh, you know, my family and life circumstances changed because of it as well, and uh, everything changed in 2013, and everything. Um, so it was really like starting from scratch again and, and uh, you know, really building myself up, including my confidence to be able to write music, enjoy music again. You know, uh, I'd, I'd stopped enjoying music. Yeah. You know, I'd heard so much of it uh, through those DJ periods, and and I'd sort of went, I don't even want to listen to music anymore. Mm. You know, so I st- I didn't for about six months, and then I slowly started getting back into it. And what did I go to first? The stuff that I grew up with. Right, I found myself playing Smith's records in the car. Yeah. You know, and things like that, and um, it kind of got me back into enjoying music again. So. Um, yeah, it was it was definitely a journey. Those those five years were the hardest years of my life, 2010 to 2015. And um, uh, yeah, I wouldn't wish them upon anyone, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. So, what was your first gig back then? Well, I was living in Alexandria in 2000, late 2014, early 15, I think it was. And um, I was just taking a dog for a walk over at Sydney Park, and I heard this raid music pumping out from the smokestacks. I'm like, oh, I'll go over there, see what the hell that is. And I hadn't been really at that active on Facebook up to this point, so I didn't really know much about Sydney Rave history or or uh, any of the groups that did things at Sydney Park. So I rock up, rock up there and there's Paul Holden and there's a whole lot of people I haven't seen in five, ten years, you know, and they're DJing and they're like, Mark, how are you going? I'm like, wow, I didn't know you guys did this. They said, do you want to play? That's cool. And I said, yeah, no worries, when's your next one? So that was in a couple of months and um, that was really one of my first gigs back, the Sydney Rave History Party at the Smokestacks at right. Sydney Park. So, um, and of course that was playing early 90s rave music. So um, because of that, uh, uh, you know, people saw me playing again. I started to get a few club gigs, mainly retro things. Yep. Um, and I thought, I'm kind of in this retro mode. Let's, let's th- I want to throw an event on. I haven't done an event for years and I'd love to actually put something on. Yep. So um, I, st- I got in contact with Paul Holden because I knew he had this particular style of music that I wanted to do that hadn't really been covered yet. And that was Hip House and Chicago House and Acid House those three genres, which were a particular sound from 1988 to 1992. 
And I called out Paul Holden because he was definitely DJing around at that time at, at Holden parties. And I said, let's do this together. You know, let's, let's put this on and just see what happens. You know, what, it can't hurt. I've got a venue that want to do it, Sly Fox in Enmore. Um, and uh, let's see what happens. So we put the first one on and it was a great success. You know, we got 250, 300 people through the door. This is Jack the House. This is Jack the House, yeah. And that was late, that was November 13th, 2015. And, um, you know, we did another one. And uh, it was still busy, you know, it was like, 250 people again so we sort of realised that we'd started a series there we were going to put on every two months and then Paul Holden died and it was a massive shock for all of us you know just completely out of the blue Um, and um, myself and a whole group of people from the industry put on an event at home nightclub uh, a tribute party for Paul Holden a month after he passed away. And uh, we got all the DJs that were associated with Paul to play 15-minute sets. And that was literally was like as many records they could fit into 15 minutes that Paul used to play that meant something to that DJ. You know, so, And then Paul used to play a lot of different styles from the period he started in 1986 through to the time that he passed away. You know, there was happy hardcore, there was trance, there was Italian, there was house, everything. So the music on the night was really varied. And there were also uh, speeches on the night uh, from people that were close to him. Uh, and it was, it was tear-jerking, you know. Um, but it was also really positive. Yep. Um, and that's definitely a night I'll never forget. Um, and I think that's what Paul would have wanted as well, mm-hmm. you know, to, to go out like that. So um, I had a chat to his family about Jack the House, and I sort of said, you know, what, what do you think they thought uh, it would be something that Paul would want to keep Jack the House going because he was so excited about playing something like this again. So um, we continued Jack the House uh, and did another seven parties. uh, And um, there's actually another one coming up very soon, which we had a bit of a break after the 10. And now there'll be a warehouse party uh, on March the 23rd, Jack the House Origins. So we're going back to the original DJs that played at the time from 1988 to 95, tweaked it a little bit. So it's um, Acid House and early techno. So it kind Wicked. of, and 1988 to 95 now, so it sort of broadens the, broadens the years a little bit so there'll be more music to choose from. So the details for that, facebook.com slash groups slash Jack the House. Right. Uh, and people can subscribe to that community page and all the details will go up there for the party. So that's coming up March 23rd. Links in the show notes, people. Go yeah. click the link. So um, alongside this, uh, also, as I said, I've been enjoying listening to 80s music again. Yep. And um, the electronic uh, podcast came about. So then we started doing electronic events and um, they're also happening now. The next one is February the 15th and yep. that happens at Tokyo Sing Song, which is underneath the Marlborough Hotel in King Street, Newtown. Right. And it's Friday night, uh, goes from nine till three, and it's great because we play all of those original 12-inch vinyls from the 80s. Great. Good fun. That's great. It's shamelessly nostalgic, but who cares? Man, people are wanting it, you know? Yeah, it's fun. I, I want to go. I want to go to all those events. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell me about your job at Ministry of Sound these days. Yeah, okay, so... Uh, it confuses people because Ministry of Sound used to be a, a recordings business and an events business. And it was owned by one particular company here in Australia. Uh, and uh, the recording side of the business got sold off to Sony Music. 
So Ministry of Sound Recordings is now under the Sony banner. I started uh, back when they when they took it over, uh, back in November 2017. And I spent the last year just rebuilding the brand um, as, as a brand that appeals to a wider audience. You know, there are a lot of people that are nostalgic about the ministry brand. Uh, I'm trying to find that middle ground uh, as as manager for ministry, you know. Uh, so the comps appeal to a wider audience. Right. So we've done a lot of different things over the last 12 months. You know, we've got our headline brands like the annual uh, running tracks, chill out sessions. Chill out sessions is probably my favorite one out of all of them. Uh, because you can kind of go indie dance and indie electronica and get away with it. You right, know? gotcha. Uh, but there's also things on there like Transnation, which is the next one that's coming out. Um, and then I've got one coming out later in the year called Essential House Classics, which is all those great tracks from the late 90s and early noughties um, that we all used to play in the clubs. So um, it's just it's another platform to get this music out there. Now, on top of the compilations, we also do we did a deal with Apple Music, so we have exclusive Ministry of Sound playlists on Apple Music, right? Which is really exciting, and they're different to the compilations. They have different tracks and different playlist names. Yep. Um, so, so, are you putting those compilations together, or you got a team that? I put the compilations together. Yeah, yeah, so cool. I, I, I pick the tracks. Awesome. Um, sometimes I mix them. Sometimes I get other DJs to mix them. Sometimes we have a guy called Noel Burgess, who is yep. actually from a band called Vision 4-5, um, who uh, is an engineer producer who does a great job at uh, putting these uh, compilations together. So he does some of them, but then I, I chime in on, on track order and sequencing right. as well. So, right. um, But I also do all the licensing uh, for the tracks, bring them into the company, and also uh, work out the marketing rollout and you know whatever whatever you know needs to happen. You kind of have to be a jack of all trades in record labels these days, you know. So sometimes you'll be directing a TV ad, the next day you'll be licensing tracks from Russia or Amsterdam, you know, right. and the next day you're actually in the studio mixing um, a compilation together. So it's uh, it's a bit of everything, which is great because it keeps it interesting, you know. Now, I was I was um doing research for this thing and you go by the name of LL eBay. Oh, no. You <laughs> yeah. had to bring that up. Well, I saw it and it made me laugh. So, of course, I was going to ask. So yeah. it's LL eBay. Well, this was just a way of saving money, really, because when I started Jack the House, we needed a warm-up DJ. Oh. <laughs> 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 and, and because it was music from 88 to 92, I wanted a warm-up DJ that played that old-school hip-hop from that time, like Tribe Called Quest right. and, and Public Enemy and NWA and things like that. So it would kind of lead into the hip house for the early part of the night. I couldn't really find someone that specialised in that sound. I thought, bugger it, I'll just do it. You know, I'm already there. Yep. You know, we've got a door girl working the door anyway. So it's yep. like, you know, I might even do it in a mask. I was going to say, did you, yeah. were you in a mask or costume? I, I or? did at the start, but then it got too hot and I gave up yeah. on that. <laughs> I remember seeing some stuff on um, Facebook for one of your Jack the House gigs about it turning into a silent rave. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that and how that sort of came about? And uh, yeah. uh, we're probably we're probably um, heading into sort of dark territory. You're going to talk about your mate. Well, we live in dark times, mate. It's yeah. got to happen, you yeah. know. Yep. Um, second, Jack the House in. I got a phone call from the owner of uh, Sly Fox saying, "We've just had the authorities tell us that we can't play amplified music after 3 a.m. anymore." I said, "Hang on, you've been open for since 1985. The venue's been there since 1985." 
And apparently the, the authorities had gone back through paperwork and found some DA approval from 1985, which had been superseded many, many times through many DAs and changes to the building and the soundproofing to the building and, you know, all of that that had happened many times. Yet they pulled this DA from, from 85 out and said, this says you can't play amplified music after three o'clock. And it just didn't make any sense. But of course, you're fighting New South Wales authorities who don't appreciate the art and culture in this city. So the owners fought it for a while and I think they're still fighting it. But I literally had a day to turn this around because I'd advertised it as a 6am party. I think we used to put 9am to a sunrise, you know. So I said, well, I still want to stay open even if we can't play amplified music. What do we do? Get someone up there with a guitar and, and a microphone. He said, well, if it's acoustic... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I said, you know, you're going to have like 250 ravers in front of you wondering what the hell's going on. I said, we just can't do anything about it. So within 24 hours, we'd worked out how to do it. We said, we'll get, we'll get hold of the people that do silent disco. They came in, charged all their headphones up overnight. And the next night we put on a silent disco from 3am till 6am. Now the funny story about this, this is at 3am, cops showed up and they walked in the door and I was DJing at the time, but the door girl went up to the sergeant and said, yeah, what do you think? And he saw a club full of people, but no one was leaving because they're still allowed to be open. The authorities, the council said, you can stay open. You can keep your pokies running because we get gambling tax from of that. Course. And you can keep selling alcohol because we make money from that as well. Um, but you're not allowed to play music because we don't make any money out of that, you know? So um, <laughs> the sergeant's there and... And uh, the, the door girl gave, gave him a pair of headphones and he put the pair of headphones on and could hear the music. And then he s realized that everyone was jumping up and down to the music still. And he took the headphones off and he turned to her and he said, oh, I get it now. You really stuck it up to the cops this time. <laughs> Beautiful. And then he left and he didn't come back. That's great. So, yeah, job was done. I was very happy with that. Right. And so from f the, the future... Jack the Houses, you had to shut them down at three. For all of the Jack the Houses, from there on, uh, they would they would continue till six a.m. Right. But we would have to change the music to silent disco at three a.m. So the interesting thing was at three a.m. because everywhere else in Newtown would close down at three a.m. Um, we you get a lot of the younger crowd that were coming from the bank or or elsewhere over to Sly Fox. And the younger crowd were quite, actually quite accepting of, of the silent disco theme because it's kind of a novelty thing and, and they were into it. Yep. And, uh, but you would find the older crowd that had been there from the start and uh, you know, were very much into that early 90s music didn't like it at all. And I, I completely appreciate that. I wasn't a fan of silent disco either, but we just had to do it. Otherwise, it was dead. You'd have to go home at three and I didn't want to do that. So um, you know, people slowly got used to it, but after 10 shows... I decided that it was it was quite incumbent on the night, you know, at three o'clock. You're really at the peak of the night and then having to do that to people. So I thought, let's just put it on pause for a little while and uh, just see how, see how it goes for the next six months if there's a lot of interest. So, uh, yeah, I decided to put a post up saying, how about we do a warehouse party, Jack the Warehouse? And, um, and I stupidly said on there, <laughs> uh, if I get 300 people saying yes to this, I'll do it. And then they did. So <laughs> I, I, voted, got, I voted for that yeah, too. I, was I, like, <laughs> I boxed myself in, but you know, I actually, I actually really, really want to do it. Yeah, of, so. course you, of course you do. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the next one's in March. So, you know, let's, let's see what happens with that. That's cool. Now you, you recently um, did some support gigs for Boy George. Yeah. Yeah, what's that follow like? And there's one coming up as well. Boy, oh, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, we yep. only, it only got announced today, actually. So oh, right, Boy, okay. Boy George is back in March.
he's coming back to Sydney and that'll be, I think, the third, fourth time he's come, fourth year, I don't know, something right. like that. Right. But that's always really exciting, you know. Um, yeah, I got to meet him on the last one. I think I was playing just before his set and, um, you know, he's not a man of a lot of words when he's got an adoring crowd of course. trying to get his attention. But um, it was definitely a memorable experience. Yeah, cool. Yeah. All right, well, we sort of touched on it a little bit um, Let's talk a bit about the lockout laws because I know you've got a lot to say about that. Um, yeah. It's something that affects all of us and it's it's becoming a greater majority, that these laws and how they affect people. It used to be just the inner city people. Yep. But now it's starting to affect people out in the suburbs because Gladys is cracking down on music festivals as well, not just inner city clubs with lockouts. So you've got thousands of people that go to those festivals out west, you know, uh, of all sorts of different music. Um and they're not happy, you know, because Gladys has just brought in this new ruling that if you're going to hold a music festival now, you have to get a license from a whole load of different departments before you can do it. And that, that doesn't just mean the big festivals uh, like Electric Gardens and, you know, Subsonics and things like that. Um, that also means the little tiny guys that put on event in an outdoor arena, you know. So that's going to that's gonna stifle creativity for up-and-coming bands that can't get a break on a big festival but can play on their, uh, you know, small doof stage and things like that in New South Wales. I don't think people appreciate how much this is going to affect outdoor music, you know. And the problem is the lockout laws have killed, we all know the lockout laws have killed Sydney's nightlife anyway. Yep. All of the parties have been pushed to during the day, you know, Boy George parties, it's during the day. Everything's during the day now. So, um because it's just too difficult to get a venue that will can can go past one thirty, two o'clock, three o'clock. And there's a smattering of uh, of hotels like Burdekin and places like that, Club Seventy Seven maybe. But there's not a lot left. I mean, it really has decimated Sydney's nightlife. The lockout laws, yep. and she's you know stubborn as hell. She's not listening to anyone we're suffering in New South Wales and then you go down 12 hours down south in Melbourne, you know, the government flogs money towards, you know, the arts and culture down there and, and festivals. What do we get? A pretty light show in Sydney. That's not music. Mm. That's a pretty light show on the Opera House. We've all seen it a million times now. Um, you know, and we, after the horse race debacle on the Opera House, I don't think we want to see it ever again. <laughs> you know, so um, I'm not a fan and I've made that pretty obvious because it could be better. Yep. You know, it could be a lot better. And it's also the destruction of something that myself and a whole of load of people of uh, in Sydney built up built over up. the space yep. of 25 years. So it's, yeah, it's, it's personal. It's personal I as well. I can understand. And there's a lot less people going out to the clubs. Yep. Because they're just over it. They're like, you know, what's the point? We've, you know, we've got to pack up early. Got to, can't get back in after one thirty, two o'clock. And now the venues are like, well, of all this uh, bad media about uh, music events, they're saying, well, we don't really want dance parties anymore. Right. So suddenly you've got even less venues. Right. You know, and as I said, I didn't finish my point before about the music festivals. Gladys has now made this rule for March the 1st that to put on a music festival of any kind, you have to get permission, approval, from New South Wales Police, New South Wales Gaming, uh, New South Wales Health, uh, New South Wales Ambulance, and Gaming and Liquor. I mean, that is a mountain of red tape um, for a, maybe a small festival that's like 150, 200 people. You know, they're just not gonna bother. Simple as that, it's just too yeah. hard. Yeah. And I can guarantee you with gaming and liquor involved in this process, this is an easy way for Gladys's government to shut down music festivals for good so the drug thing goes away. Right. 
No more music festivals, there won't be any more deaths. And it's exactly the same thing as what they did with the lockouts, you know? Someone got punched, very unfortunate, wasn't even near the nightclub yep, zone. Yep. Let's make that point very yep. clear. Yep, yep, so how did, how did Mike Baird react? Or, or I think it was Barry at the time. Let's shut down the nightclub area. So and this is what they do. You've got a handful of people that do the wrong thing. You know, maybe five to ten people um, per festival of 30,000 people yep. have done a stupid thing and taken way too many pills. And then they, they you know, they suffer, they pass on or whatever happens, which is tragic. And we don't want that to happen. Of course. Um, but then, of course, it affects the other, you know, 29,990 people. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I really had to think then. <laughs> uh, so as soon as I got into that equation, I'm like, why did I go there? <laughs> I don't think people are counting anyway. No, no. So but you know what I mean? It really is the mind of very much a minute minority that ruins it for the majority. And this is not the way government should react. You know, they should get on board with decriminalizing these issues and making it more of a health issue and supporting things like pill testing. You know, pill testing doesn't make people take drugs. It's, if you see a pill testing thing, I'm not going to go, oh, I've never taken ecstasy before, but I saw that pill testing thing. I might take some now. Right. You know, where's the dealer? You know, it's, it, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> You've got these tents for pill testing, and you can just imagine what it would be like if, if it wasn't legalised. You know, say a promoter sets them up. You're going to have a mountain of police out the front of them waiting for someone to come out who's just tested their pills. You've got drug dogs there that sniff them out. You know, they have to go to court for maybe one ecstasy tablet, which goes on their... Uh, goes on their police report and suddenly they can't fly to America anymore for the rest of their life or they can't get that job that they've been working for 10 years for. You know what I mean? I mean, how unjust is that? I mean, that is ridiculous. Yeah. I'm not condoning taking drugs at all. It's, it's up to the responsibility of the person to make their own choices in life, not for the government to make those choices for them. Um, you know, I could ramble about this all day, but yep. it really pisses me off. Oh, I'll say one more thing. Yesterday, the Sydney Morning Herald did an uh, article on um, people that are lobbying the government who live in those mansions on the water around Rose Bay uh, because they don't like the music coming from the boats on the weekend. <laughs> so that's about to happen. So music on boats will be canned very shortly. So you've canned the music at night. Right, you can the music at the day because you're killing the music festivals, and now you're about to kill music on boats. I mean, you might be lucky if they leave a jukebox in a pub. You know, I mean, there won't be anything left. I mean, creative people are just leaving in droves. Yep. I mean, it's so sad to see. You know, Sydney, an international city. You know, 2000, this place was rocking. Mm. Now, you know, I spoke to people that are tourists coming over, and and they were like, "Where do we go now?" It's like. 1.30, 2 o'clock. I said, yep. well, you got one choice, the casino. They're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I don't want to go to the casino. Trying to funnel everybody down there, aren't they? Well, that's it. That's mm. what it's all about. And then you'll have another casino in, in a year and a half's time with yep. Um, yep. Packers Casino at Barangaroo. Yep. All right, man, let's flip it back to the positives. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the good stuff, the, what, the, what it's all about. Yeah. Um, you got some new music coming out. It's called Archival. Uh, opening the vaults and it's really just going back into the early days of my production and working its way forward through the next 15 years really 
Um, there was a lot of remixes that I did for other people that came out internationally and never saw the light of day here in Australia. Um, and there's a lot of tracks that, um, you know, I did with other people that uh, never got released because we were just tinkering and just trying things out. So a lot of demos there. Um, but then there's also the singles that I put out on Ministry of Sound, on Hustle Recordings, and, and also on my own label, Long Distance Recordings. So there's 30 tracks in all, and I've kind of uh, brought them all together in some coherent form. And I was quite surprised at the kind of journey that it takes. You know, um, it starts off with the newer stuff and then kind of works backwards. The latest single was uh, Salt, Salt 2.0. And um, then there was the remix of Identify Me that I did in 2017. And then it goes back from there. And, um, you know, there's some stuff that I recorded in Berlin back in 2008 when I was living there. So it definitely has more of a minimal sound to it, uh, a bit more obscure. And then there's some stuff that I did here with um, JTEC. But I was quite surprised that, that it was very layered. You know, it, uh, music these days t- seems to be quite stripped back. You've got two or three ideas over a bass line and drums. And, um, you know, you listen to some of the records, the original version of Identify Me, it's so layered and there's so much in it. And I think it was kind of like, okay, this is going to be my first track. I've got to put everything into it and lots of different parts, you yeah. know, like a part one, part two, part three, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's definitely that progressive influence in, in those early records that I put out. But, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. Like doing, I, don't, I don't look back all the time. I, mean, I do do a lot of retro gigs, but, you know, I don't look back at my own music. I kind of like to just do it, put it out there, see what people think of it, and then move on to the next thing. So it's kind of the first time I've sat there and gone, okay, let's pull all these things up again and have a listen to them. And I'll tell you what, I mean, my archive system was terrible because I thought I had everything in one folder and it was not at all. There were loads of things (laughs) missing and, you know, suddenly I had, you know, unmastered versions and then there were masters, that trial masters, but not the, the final thing that were peeking out. And I had to go back through everything and also pull out some old hard drives that were just sitting as a hard drive in a, in a drawer and try and find, you know, the original stems and mix it down again because it wasn't in any coherent form. I just didn't have that file anymore. So um, it's been a lot of work, actually. It's, it's actually been a year-long process putting this album together. Yep. Um, and it's coming out hopefully end of March Um, and then there'll be a second part to it that comes out a few months later which will be archival remixed which is all the key tracks that I've written um, that other people have remixed other DJs other artists international and local and that's really exciting to hear other people's versions of your own track it's always a beautiful thing you know you come up with this little idea in a studio you do your track and then you send it out to someone else and they, they come back with something that takes it on a completely different tangent yep. but still has that initial it's, part in there some way yep. and I love that it's that's just cool. fantastic it's really good yeah, yeah that's, that's what's really cool about um, remixes. Ele- remixing electronic music yeah. as opposed to sort of pop rock that kind of stuff it yeah. doesn't happen very much and when it, when it does happen to pop and rock music it's like it's sacrilege, man. Depends what, what it is. Yeah. It depends what it is. I mean, yeah. I've heard some great dance remixes. I mean, think of you too, even better than the real thing. I mean, the dance mix, the poor Locafold mix of that. Yep. You know, shit's all over the original. Better than the original, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It just depends what it is. But when yep. you when you start remixing Beatles and things like that, I think you're pushing it too yeah, far. Yep. I wasn't yep. a fan of the Junkie XL of Elvis, you know. Right. Yep. It wasn't my thing. But, um, you know, in terms of this stuff, it's all electronic music and it's just taking on a different tangent, especially when you've got uh, overseas 
Japanese artists from Germany remixing it because they've got their own flavor, you know, and you give them something that might work in Australia but not in Germany and they turn it into something that works in Germany. I mean, that's really exciting. So the remixed album uh, comes out probably May, June, but we'll get the first one out first, um, opening the vaults archival. Uh, and um, yeah, it'll, be, it'll just be a digital album because you know it's probably three CDs worth. Um, you know, in this day and age, for an artist album, it's just not worth your while doing yep. CD. You'll sell a hundred copies. You know what I mean? Yep. It's just not worth it. So, in, any I'd, um, possibly vinyl? No, it's no just, not at all. Yep. Especially not with that amount of tracks. Yep, yep. I mean, you know, just one album getting it pressed overseas and sending it back here costs you twenty five bucks, and then you've got to make a margin on it of something. Right. The shop's got to make them. It just can't be done. Right. So, um, you know, not for not for something like this, but it'll just be a digital compilation, and then the remix compilation will have um, a DJ. I'll do a DJ mix for it as well, so it'll be like a two. It would be a two disc, but it will be over on digital only. So, yeah, and it would also be streamable, which is which is interesting because this is a, the first uh, delve into streaming that I've done right. for my own stuff. Okay, I mean, I think the last two singles we put up there, but not an album, you know. So right. this will be the first time that all of those tracks will be up there as as an as a coherent album. Uh, under Mark Dynamics on Spotify and uh, Apple Music and wherever other DSPs it goes to. So you'll get an email at the at the end of the year saying how you went. Here's your $4.20 check. <laughs> no, there's that, but it, it'll tell you how many fans you've got and how many streams and, yeah. Look, that doesn't mean too much. No, I know. You know. At the end of the day, you just want people to enjoy it. I mean, I still enjoy I enjoyed listening to them all back, yep. and I hope someone else does out there too. And... Um, someone listens to something and takes it and uh, t- makes their own track out of it. I really like that bit. I'm going to write something like that. I mean, that's what Identify Me was, the first single. It was actually, a, I'd, I'd heard Alter Ego, Rocker, and I'd heard um, Infusion, Natural. Um, two great tracks, but two completely different tracks. I mean, Alter Ego is a very German, you know, da, 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 marching kind of techno track. Yep. And then Infusion's... Um, Natural is uh, a very much a progressive, be main room, but progressive track with building strings. And I, I thought to myself, I really want to write something that brings those two sounds together. Uh, and that's how, you know, you've got this solid bass line, this techno-y bass line, electro bass line, with all those kind of cascading melodic strings on top. Um, so, you know... That's always, it's always something that I like to do, sort of take those two elements. And, and again, it's doing what I do as a DJ. It's taking two, two different elements and combining them and finding those hybrid songs that right. sort of fit in the middle between house and trance or house and progressive. Well, I think on that, Mark Dynamics, thanks for being on the Gig Life podcast. Cheers, mate. Cheers, brother. <laughs> <laughs>